Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. My name is Rami, I'm the host of the podcast, and it's been quite a while since I've been back on here at all or done any type of podcast recording whatsoever. Um, Ever since the start of the pandemic about 10 months ago, really this entire project has been on pause, um, unfortunately. But we have good news because we are finally ready to start releasing all of our episodes starting today. We will have an episode out every Monday from here on out. And um, our team has all the episodes ready to go. Um, And today's episode was one of my all-time favorite episodes with Dr. Dave Williams. And after you listen to the episode, you'll know why. He's a physician, an astronaut, a CEO, and brilliant speaker, articulate, just such a cool guy, drives a freaking Ducati, Um, probably one of the coolest people I've ever talked to in my life. Um, And I'm so excited to share this episode. I will say when I listened back to it, it was uh, terribly painful to hear myself talk because I believe I had recorded this episode after finishing a 24-hour shift and I believe I had allergies or something was wrong with me because I sounded like, I don't know. But anyways, um, you know, I'm still a growing and learning podcaster and I am getting better at what I do every day. And so um, if there are moments where you're like, geez, get it together, man, uh, I accept those feelings. So without further ado, um, I'm going to introduce the podcast and we'll get right into it. Dr. Williams has been kind enough to join us today to talk to us a little bit about his story and background and also his book defying limits dr williams thank you so much for being with us today oh it's my pleasure dr williams so what is it like being an astronaut which job is cooler well you know the great part about being an astronaut is you're still a doctor so you get to practice medicine in space and in addition to being a doctor you get trained to be a pilot uh, you get trained to do spacewalks there's a whole breadth of skills that are required to be an astronaut on board the space station Right, right. So what made you, I mean, you went through all the medical training, you went through all the rigor of medical school, you were at McGill for your residency, which is, um, you know, McGill is one of the top hospitals or medical schools in the country. Um, How did you decide, oh, I want more training, I want more rigor, I want more excitement? What made you decide, oh, I'm going to go into becoming an astronaut now? You know, one of the things I talk about in the book is don't let other people define your dreams for you. Mm -hmm. And I was seven years old when I dreamt of becoming an astronaut. I watched Alan Shepard lift off to go into space in May of 1961, said, that's what I want to do. But in those days, it didn't seem possible as a Canadian because the only countries flying humans in space were NASA, America, and Russia. Mm -hmm. And uh, as a result, you know, my other dream was uh, to live and work underwater. I learned to scuba dive when I was 12. And that exposed me to human physiology, which led me to become very interested in how the body functions in extreme environments. So I went on to medical school, became an emergency trauma physician. And then in 1992, had an opportunity to apply to become an astronaut and very fortunately was selected. That's amazing. What is that process like applying to become an astronaut? Do they just, do you just, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of people applying and there's probably not too many spots. Is it like, um, How would you explain that process? 
So NASA has a process roughly every two to three years, and they've actually been using social media now to get the announcement out. So typically with a NASA selection, there would be anywhere between three and 4,000 people responding, and they would hire anywhere between 15 and 20 astronauts. But now with social media, they'll have 10,000, 15,000 applications. In Canada, it's a little bit different. We hire once every 10 years or so. Mm-hmm. So in January of 1992, of course, social media really wasn't around in those days they put an ad in the newspaper you know you read in the want ads want to be an astronaut of course i want to be an astronaut so we had uh, 5300 people apply for four spots and what i love about that is we had 650 applications from kids less than 10 years of age so there's <laughs> nothing nothing wrong getting that application in early that's right um so what is can you give us like a quick summary of your career and kind of for people that don't know who you are kind of an overall gist of kind of your story and your history. Yeah, I uh, always wanted to be an astronaut. And uh, when I was told I couldn't do that, I be, wanted to become an aquanaut, live and work underwater. So I started diving at a very young age, went to McGill University because I was very passionate about human physiology. And I studied neurobiology as an undergraduate, neurophysiology as a graduate student. And of course, all that led to going into medical school. And I was very fortunate to spend 12 years at McGill, basically doing my undergraduate degree, my graduate research degree in medical school. I specialized in family practice initially and then emergency medicine and trauma. And uh, I think those two areas for me really captured the opportunity to be able to work in the medicine of extreme environments. So diving medicine, aerospace medicine, when I went through, they were truly specialties the way they are today. They were specialized bodies of knowledge, no question about that. So I was able to pursue my passion for exploration and my passion for human physiology and medicine in extreme environments all together by doing that training that's awesome and then what was your what was your journey like going through the nasa training and going on missions and and that whole process you know becoming an astronaut is absolutely incredible it's kind of strange because one day you know i'm I'm working as a physician the next day when i'm accepted as an astronaut everybody thinks oh you're an astronaut now (laughs) doctor doctor astronaut to you yeah that's right yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so my first space flight was in 1998, and I uh, flew for 16 days on board the Space Shuttle Columbia. Between my first and my second space shuttle flights, I was the director of the Space and Life Sciences Director at Johnson Space Center, the Deputy Associate Administrator for the Office of Space Flight in Washington. That was an amazing experience. And then I was reassigned to fly in 2002. And very tragically, after that, we lost Columbia, so that delayed my second space flight. And... Um, I also ended up being diagnosed with cancer in uh, 2004, so that was tough. Very tragically, I was diagnosed with cancer in 2004, lost all of my medicals as an astronaut, as a pilot and everything, had to go for surgery. I was at Sloan Kettering in New York, and uh, after a very successful surgical experience, I went into rehab and then finally got my medicals back, both as a pilot and then as an astronaut, and I flew in space my second space flight in 2007 as a cancer survivor. Incredible. Um, just what was that process like um, being diagnosed between those two missions, and what was it that kept you fighting and um, kind of like moving forward through that? 
You know, one of the things that struck me the most as a physician, we treat patients and families in their times of need. So we, we experience what happens to other people, but often we're not on the receiving right. end of healthcare. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I became a patient, it was interesting. When I went into the hospital, I kind of walked into the hospital, of course, as everybody else does. And when I was vertical, I was a physician astronaut. But when the nurse came in and said, oh, Dr. Williams, you know, you've got to put on the gown. And by the way, it opens up in the back yeah. and climb on <laughs> the stretcher and lie down. Somewhere from, you know, sitting there vertically and lying down, I went from being a physician astronaut to being a patient. So I truly understand what it means to be a patient. And at the end of my five-day hospital admission where you know, I had bilateral IVs, a Foley catheter, mm-hmm. abdominal drains, uh, the whole bit. So at the end of five days, the nurse comes in. She says, uh, I'm here to take out your intravenous. I said, well, thank you very much. I really appreciate the great care. And she looks at me and says, you're a doctor, aren't you? Yeah. And I said, yes, I am. She says, did you uh, learn anything while you've been in here? And I said, yes, I have. <laughs> says, you promise you will remember, won't you? And I said, I promise I'll remember. So that patient experience uh, is very, very important. And no one wants to become a patient. But as a physician, I learn more about healthcare and my role as a patient than I did actually as a doctor delivering healthcare. Incredible. What kind of, what did that, what did that experience um kind of tell you about what you want to do with the rest of your life in terms of your you know, astronaut physician career? Yeah, when I became a, a patient, you know, being diagnosed with cancer, my initial reaction, despite all of my medical training and all my knowledge and things, was that I was going to die. Mm-hmm. And that was tough. You know, no one wants to be confronted with the harsh reality of the finite limits to our life. Mm-hmm. It took me a few hours uh, to work through that. And then by the next day, I sort of said, okay, you know, time to take the same approach to this that I've done with everything else in my life. Mm-hmm. Let's figure out a solution. And so I went and read the medical literature in the area, got on the phone, found uh, the best specialist in the United States and mm-hmm. ended up at Sloan Kettering. So basically it was find a solution, invoke the solution and work through the problem. So I was able to do that. And very fortunately for me, it all worked out. It's incredible. I'm happy to, very happy to hear that. And it's, um, I always like to hear these stories from people because it's such, you know, um, going through, going through any adversity like that is, could obviously be life changing. And I'm always curious to hear people's process or people's kind of journey navigating through that. Um, Go ahead. You know, for for me, um, many people talk about the most important thing of li- in life is the pursuit of happiness. Mm-hmm. I actually totally, totally disagree because in my life, which I call my journey, right? And yeah. the, the journey has ups and downs and twists and turns and things. I have not been uniformly happy throughout my whole life. There have mm-hmm. been times that have been pretty darn tough and uh, I've had to work through those. So for me, the most important thing in life is actually the pursuit of meaning. Because when we're confronted with adversity, when we have to work through these tough, challenging situations and we're able to get through it, that is a very meaningful experience. And we become better, I think, as as individuals having dealt with some of these challenges and things. So I'm all about pursuing meaning. And in those moments when you're happy, that's great. But in those moments where we have challenges, working through to find the solution to be able to move forward. Absolutely. You just reminded me of this book I was reading. uh, It's called Man's Search for Meaning. I'm not sure if you've uh, been able to read that book, but it's from uh, a survivor from the Holocaust and how they how they found meaning in their everyday life and 
how the point, it, kind of exactly like you said, it, the, the point of life is not the pursuit of happiness, but the pursuit of finding meaning in your everyday life. And I think, I think that's really cool. Well, I'm glad you read that book because when I was in first year medical <laughs> school at McGill, so this is 1979 and I'm a Med 1 student, we had an invited guest lecture series. So he said, who could we get that would be a fantastic uh, speaker to talk to the Faculty of Medicine at McGill? So we reached out to Victor Frankel, oh, no the way. author yeah. of, yes, and he agreed to come to Montreal. So he came and it was an unbelievable experience to be able to learn firsthand from uh, what he had to go through and the critical importance of meaning and you know fundamentally his message is people can take everything away from us except one thing the ability on to choose how we respond to the situation we're in absolutely that's such an important lesson i love that yeah, yeah. I, that, that yeah. book was a was a real that's one of my favorite books i think I, mean, I say that about a lot of books but i i, I think that's um that's that's also part of the reason i like hearing these parts of people's stories you know um i like to i like to dig into the 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 real tough parts and the the setbacks and I'm glad you're so open to talk about that. Yes, no, it's my pleasure. I mean, another another book that actually changed my life was one written by Ted Rosenthal, and he was a writer that used to write for the New York Post, New York Times way back in the early 1970s, and that was at a totally different time in medicine where we didn't have the ability to treat leukemia effectively, and at a very young age, he was 31, 32, he was diagnosed with leukemia. So he wrote a book called How Can I Not Be Among You, which is out of print, but you can Google it, you might find versions on the internet. And fundamentally, he shared that when you're confronted with the finite reality of your life, mm -hmm. it's possible to live a lifetime in a moment, in a nanosecond, in a minute, in an hour, whatever. Mm -hmm. And on my second space flight, <clears throat> uh, second space walk on my second space flight, I was riding on the end of the Canadarm, looking at the Earth beneath me, a four and a half billion year old planet upon which the entire history of the human species has taken place. And in that nanosecond, mm -hmm. I had this epiphany and I understood what Ted was talking about. It was like living a lifetime in that nanosecond when I saw the Earth from that particularly unique view in space. So, you know, that uh, when I first read that book in Med 1, I actually said, you know, that's how I want to live my life, getting as much as I can out of every day of every moment that I have. And I've been very fortunate to have now been around for 65 years and been able to live a life that's been very full and very rich and very meaningful. That's incredible. Um, <clears throat> how did how did that experience over uh, like being up in space change your world view? I guess I, I can imagine being up there and just seeing all the incredible things that you could possibly see being up in space can be like can make you feel so part of a bigger thing. I guess I would say you know sometimes when you look up in the sky and you see all these stars and you're like at least myself, when I'm looking up and I'm like, wow, these are stars light years away. And they're, to us, they just look like little specks. But really, we're just in this in humongous universe. And you don't really think about this because you're in your daily grind every day. You're just thinking you live in your own little bubble world. But really, it's all, it's just, it's humongous. How does yeah. going up into space and experiencing that, how does that change your life? 
So it's an unbelievable experience. And pretty well every astronaut will refer to what we call the planetary perspective. So you imagine you're lying flat on your back in a spacecraft getting ready to lift off. And then all of a sudden, the main engines ignite. Eight and a half minutes later, you're in space, mm -hmm. traveling 25 times the speed of sound. That's five miles a second. You orbit the Earth every 90 minutes. So when you're orbiting the Earth and you look back at the planet, it's this beautiful blue oasis cast against the black infinite void of space. And, you know, we talk about going back to the moon and going on to Mars, but really the best planet to live on in our solar system is the Earth, the one mm -hmm. that we're living on right now. And there's no boundaries that separate countries that you can see from space. So you realize that we're all in this together. Yeah. And, you know, the greatest lesson of space exploration from a human perspective is the importance of globalization. And it doesn't matter what your background is, what your gender is, what country you come from, what culture you represent. When we're in space, we go forward exploring space on the behalf of humanity. Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting being there with astronauts and cosmonauts from all sorts of different backgrounds. And yet all of that is put aside as we go forward and explore space representing everyone on the planet Earth. So I think it's a really great perspective. And it's something that we need to share back on Earth, the fact that we can try and work together collaboratively to get along to talk through and work through some of the challenges that we face working between different groups, different countries, etc. But uh, understanding the importance of taking care of our planet for the future, because, you know, what we do to our planet will mm -hmm. determine how long we're able to successfully live on our planet. And that's something that's very important for all of us to consider. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, do you think that you think that if everybody had had a chance to experience that, that things would change or like their perspective? Like for me as a regular person here, if I were to see that, how would my worldview change? You know, I think it does change your worldview. It, I wish it were e easy to bring everybody yeah, to right. space. <laughs> you know, unfortunately, it's not that easy. But the best thing that we can do on Earth to experience what it's like being in space is go to see an IMAX movie in 3D. Hmm. And, you know, if you sit in the IMAX theater and uh, there's nobody in front of you and you're wearing your 3D glove, it's almost what it's like being in space. It's probably about 70 to 80 percent of what it's really like. Hmm, yeah. And then getting a chance, yeah, to just sit there and see those images of the Earth and to start beginning to think about the origins of our species, the fact that our planet's four and a half billion years old. What mm -hmm. does infinity really mean? Mm -hmm. You know, the universe is, in fact, <clears throat> infinite. How do you get your yeah. mind around that concept and that, you know, here we are on our planet wondering, are we alone? And yet if you start thinking about other planets that might support life somewhere else in some other galaxy, yeah. then you realize that, in fact, the probability of life elsewhere is actually quite high. Whether yeah. it's yeah. intelligent or not, we don't know, but yeah. the probability of life is, <laughs> is definitely quite high. Well, here, here's an interesting question for you. This is more my sci-fi geeky geeky side um but so what what do you think about that life on other planets and um i guess alternate universes or things of that sort i mean going up into space experiencing it being deeply grounded in medical knowledge and science what is your what is your outlook on that 
You know, it's really interesting to think about. So I would go back to my childhood Mm -hmm. when I'm watching the original Star Trek episodes on television, a little black and white television and things. Star Wars didn't even exist. 2001, A Space Odyssey made everybody think about what the possibilities were in exploring space. But we like to say what the space program does is it takes science fiction and makes it into science fact. And what we think about today, you know, if you look at a movie like Interstellar or if you look at Jodie Foster's movie Contact and you start to think about that, that today is very fictional. Mm -hmm. But you wonder in the future, will that science fiction of today become science fact in the future, whether it's in 50 years or 100 years? Mm -hmm. I personally believe the human species is a spacefaring species. Mm -hmm. And clearly with the technology that we have today to explore space, we're limited to our solar system. But who knows what's going to happen in the future? Right, right. So like, so, I mean, do you think there are other planets with intelligence like we have on Earth or things of that nature well we don't know so yeah. you know it's a question of because the, the universe is actually right because well that this and this is what i think about if the universe is actually infinite then doesn't that mean that there's infinite possibilities and that there <laughs> yeah one one would think so right? right so nowadays there's a phrase called the goldilocks zone mm-hmm. and the goldilocks zone is basically a planetary body that's close enough to a source of energy like the sun where the planet has an atmosphere and is warm enough to be able to support life so the probability of extremophile bacteria existing elsewhere in our universe Mm -hmm. is actually quite high Mm -hmm. Uh, whether or not bacteria exist on other planets in our current solar system we don't know whether life exists currently on other planets in our solar system we don't know but so far we haven't found any evidence of that and that's Mm -hmm. one of the reasons why we go forward to explore space but i think it would be very egocentric of the human species to think that it's the only intelligent life form in the universe Mm -hmm. Were there any moments that you experienced in space um, where you were just like completely blown away about something or just completely made you really question things or think differently about something? Most of those moments took place when I was doing a spacewalk outside in my spacesuit, working in the extreme vacuum of space where temperatures range from minus 200 to over 200 degrees. And you look over your shoulder and you can see the northern lights dancing over a quarter of the planet. The beauty is absolutely spectacular. On my first space shuttle flight, we were on Columbia, up on the flight deck. We turned off all the lights. We were looking at the stars. And then all of a sudden there was this shower of micrometeoroids, which is incredible beautiful and they're coming in and entering into the earth's atmosphere these bright flashes of light and things until we realized that if we were hit by one of those micrometeoroids it would be a really bad day Mm -hmm. and we probably wouldn't survive the experience but that's space space is this stark contrast between extreme beauty Mm-hmm. and danger yeah and you realize especially when you're doing a spacewalk you know we sort of joke about it if you have a problem while you're doing a spacewalk quite literally you might have the rest of your life to solve the problem <laughs> wow it's a it's an interesting way to look at it yeah wow um so can you tell us a moment maybe in your career where you were able to bring together the science of medicine and being an astronaut 
So my first space flight was very focused on neuroscience and space. The mission was called NeuroLabs, celebrated the decade of the brain, and we were doing a wide range of fundamental neuroscience experiments right through to applied physiology, human neuroscience experiments in space. And one of the things that we were doing was looking at how the nervous system adapted to being in space. And of course, when I trained as a neuroscientist, we were taught that the nervous system is all hardwired. Mm -hmm. And the implication was that the connections between nerve cells never changed. Mm -hmm. Today, we we know that those connections change. It's Mm -hmm. called neuronal plasticity. And we were able to demonstrate that on NeuroLab in 1998, a truly remarkable mission. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, And so... Having that knowledge that, you know, we do, we are very plastic in our neuronal networks, what did that change for you? What did that knowledge change or what did that knowing kind of, how did that impact you? So it changes our fundamental understanding of the nervous system. So we think about patients with stroke. Mm -hmm. If we can enhance the plasticity of neurons in the area of damage to facilitate recovery, hopefully we can totally change the way in which uh, stroke patients uh, are able to recover and rehabilitate and mitigate some of the impact of ischemic stroke, uh, whether it's an infarct or a hemorrhagic stroke. You know, the other thing that I think is really interesting, we flew an oyster toadfish in space. And you're probably Mm -hmm. thinking, who the heck cares about an oyster (laughs) toadfish? Yeah. Well... The thing that was interesting about the oyster toadfish is we had a wafer electrode that became a permanent part of its nervous so system. So what, so what is an oyster toadfish exactly? Oh, it's, it's just a, it's a fish. Okay, and, okay, uh, got it. I, thought, yeah, I, was, I wasn't sure this, if this was the name of a spacecraft. Or, <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's a fish. It okay. quite literally is a fish. Yeah. And, you know, it's... It's kind of a funny-looking fish. You can Google it and you can check it. And not the prettiest fish on the planet, but anyway, it's a fish. And what we wanted to do was understand whether the organ of balance in this fish and how it adapted to being in space. So we took the vestibular nerve of the oyster toadfish and transected it. We cut it. Yep. And put the put this wafer electrode in between and sewed the nerve back to the wafer electrode. So basically, over time, the nerves regrew. It was a peripheral nerve, so it regrew through the wafer electrode, and we had a permanent window into the nervous system of the fish so that when it went to space, we could actually record electric, electrophysiologic wow. data mm. on the vestibular apparatus of the oyster toadfish in space. Okay, so that's really cool, yeah. but every, everybody's going, so what? Like, How does this affect us on Earth? What's remarkable about this is in the next 50 years, we're beginning to see this now, we will have biocompatible implants with human peripheral nerves and I believe the human central nervous system. Mm-hmm. So imagine with the optic nerve being able to incorporate a biocompatible electrode such that we can give individuals who are blind the gift of sight using photoreceptors. And many people would say, oh, that's science fiction. But remember, in the space program, we take science fiction and make it into science fact. Years ago, prosthetic devices years ago were very rudimentary devices. Now, today, we have thought-controlled prosthetic devices. We have people who are able to drive wheelchairs by thought. And I think that's really something incredible. That is mind-blowing to me. To me, I thought that was actually science fiction because I just I, I couldn't think of a way in which we could translate that into real life. But how how exactly is that happening, by the way? 
So interestingly, there are a group of uh, biomedical engineering students at McGill University that came up with a technology to be able to do that. You'll see if you search on the Internet, there's different groups around the world. Mm -hmm. But what they're doing is using uh, surface electrodes. So essentially, it's like the array of electrodes you would do to do brainwave uh, mm -hmm. recording, EEG recordings. Mm -hmm. But you don't need all the electrodes. If you're simply driving a wheelchair, basically, you're going forward, you're going backwards, or right. you're turning. Right. So you can have different electrophysiologic correlates of that. So if you teach somebody to think <clears throat> going forward and you record that brainwave activity, then you can use that to trigger the wheelchair to go forward. So that's how mm. you can do it by thought non-invasively. And then, of course, in the future, we're just going to get better and better right. at all this. This is with today's technology. But for patients who are quadriplegics who have extreme difficulty with uh, using their hands, if they have any residual function in their hands at all, all of a sudden this is a game changer. Mm. It's amazing the technological capability that we have. Similarly to being able to control a prosthetic device by thought. Mm -hmm. You know, years ago, you had a prosthetic <clears throat> device, you would have to manipulate it with your other extremity. But now all of a sudden we've got this amazing capability of thinking about these biocompatible devices. Yeah. It's interesting too because now that you're saying that, I'm like, you know, we're taking these things that are sort of sci-fi and turning them into real life. But then when you think about it and you're breaking it down, you just break it down into these little very small processes like controlling something with thought. I guess, you know, me telling my finger to move right now is me controlling it with, with my brain. So I guess if you break that down into a kind of like into a similar process where you're telling something to move, I guess that's basically controlling something with your thought, right? That is. Yeah. So NASA is involved in all sorts of research that helps underlie the development of these technologies. When Christopher Reeves was alive, he was very interested in what we call programmed electric stimulation. So you can actually emulate the gait patterns of an individual walking, put somebody with a spinal cord injury in a support harness, and do programmed electric stimulation of their lower extremities to recreate walking. Hmm. So it turns out walking is... You can do that, but the problem is standing and turning and maintaining balance and all this. But again, we start off with these really tough challenges. We develop initial technologies. We keep pushing to extend that envelope of what we consider possible. And I love to say what NASA does is it gets rid of the letters IM out of the word impossible right. and seeks to make the impossible possible. Right. What are you What are you most interested to see in the future, to learn about in the future? You know, for, for me as a physician right now, I think the two transformational technologies that are going to make a difference in the next 20, 30 years of healthcare are artificial intelligence and augmented mm. reality. Yes. Uh, today, I'm actually a CEO of a company called Leap Biosystems. So we're developing augmented reality solutions for healthcare professionals, whether they're working in space or whether they're working on Earth. And the idea is to be able to extend throughout the world our medical capabilities. Mm. Uh, years ago, on one of the NEMO undersea missions, so NASA does these missions to the Aquarius undersea research habitat, in uh, the mid-2000s, we demonstrated remote telerobotic surgery with a surgeon located in Canada and a simulated surgical patient on the Aquarius undersea research habitat, 60 feet beneath the surface of the ocean, 10 miles off the coast of Key Largo, Florida, we're doing real-time telerobotic surgery. Wow. Why? 
because we want to test the technology. And we actually took the latency to beyond a second to ask the question, what would happen if we were on the moon and we had to perform a surgical procedure remotely on the surface of the moon? So that's what NASA is all about, is yeah. using the requirements of space to drive the development of new technologies that change the way in which we live here on Earth. How do you think artificial intelligence is going to play into our space exploration and our advancement as like a species as a whole? Yeah, so, you know, in 2001, uh, Space Odyssey, they had artificial intelligence. When I, you know, I watched that I guess, when uh, I was... I guess the artificial intelligence I'm talking about is kind of like this, the, the, the one that we keep hearing about, which we don't know how far in the future this is, but like the the real intelligence that can like actually, um, you know, that that's going to be like hundreds of thousands of times more capable than a human being or able to do things at like hundreds of thousands of times the power that our current technology can do. I think it's really exciting. But again, mm -hmm. in the 60s, that was science fiction, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a computer, HAL, on board a spacecraft depicted in this movie, 2001, that is a fully intelligent computer. I mean, it, doing exactly everything that you just described. Mm -hmm. So one of the spacewalkers is outside, and HAL will not open the pod bay door to let the spacewalker back in. The spacewalker's name is Dave. Mm -hmm. I always wanted to use that line when I was in space. Open the pod bay door, HAL. I'm sorry, Dave. I can't <laughs> yeah. do that. Yeah. But, you know, it will change. It's a game changer for healthcare because artificial intelligence will enable us to uh, have diagnostic decision tools to help physicians. It will help us with robotics in space using artificial intelligence to control space robotics and mm -hmm. keep the robot out of uh, specific zones where there's a risk of collision and things. Artificial intelligence can help us pilot spacecraft. Artificial intelligence can help us deliver healthcare in space. Mm -hmm. So it truly is a game changer. And also, you know, when we start to think about artificial intelligence, it opens up the door for very interesting ethical discussions mm -hmm. about what the artificial intelligence, the scope of its ability to be able to control what we're doing as humans. So I think mm -hmm. it's a very interesting time for the human species where technology now is playing a role in our ability to survive. Mm. How far away do you think it is before we have <clears throat> something that's com like a, a like an artificial intelligence that's totally capable of kind of uh i guess taking over a lot of the things that humans can do i think within the next hundred years we're going to see this happen yeah. today right now we have self-driving cars so cars are sort of the way airplanes are Mm -hmm. You can have a fully autonomous car where it's like engaging the autopilot in an airplane. The airplane flies itself. Mm -hmm. You still need the driver in the fully autonomous car. But then you can have semi-autonomous vehicles where you're still, as a driver, engaged in part of the functions of the mm -hmm. cars. But this is, right, this is you know, 2019. Yeah. You wait another 50 years, and the idea of self-driving cars, I mean, that, that'll be yesterday's oh news. God, yeah. Think about You're 50 right? years from now. I mean, what did we... Yeah. There wasn't even... There wasn't the internet. There wasn't television. There were, well, maybe they had the black screens, uh, the black and white screens, but there was, it was a different world. Yeah. No, absolutely yeah. no question. You know, from a healthcare perspective, my uncle, and I'm not that old, I'm 65, mm -hmm. my uncle died when he was a kid of a strep throat. Mm. And he died of a strep throat because this was before the invention of antibiotics. Right. Now, 
with all the drug-resistant bacteria that exist, we're actually considering the possibility of a post-antibiotic era where all right. the antibiotics we currently have don't work anymore. Right. So, you know, yeah. within less than 100 years, we've gone through developing life-saving drugs to now the possibility these drugs don't work anymore. Mm -hmm. So the rate, of, the rate of change is just absolutely mind-boggling. And mm -hmm. whether it's within healthcare or whether it's looking in another area of technology, 50 years from now, uh, there are going to be so many changes, it's almost hard to predict what they're going to be. Right, right. What do you think? Do you, are you a fan of Elon Musk? I'm guessing you must be. Yes, you know, yeah. I think one of the things that's really exciting about what Elon Musk does is he mm -hmm. pushes the envelope. Yeah. He will take on problems that many people considered impossible, you know, like landing a vertical spacecraft after right. coming back from space. Most people would have said, you know, we're not going to do that. That's yeah. just te technologically yeah. a little too difficult to do. Uh, yeah. No big deal. Elon Musk says, go make it happen. The, the uh, engineers go off and make it happen. But mm -hmm. I think that thinking that entrepreneurial approach to thinking mm -hmm. outside the box and making the impossible possible is what's going to transform the future. Mm -hmm. Do you agree with some of his thoughts on artificial intelligence? I'm not sure if you've listened to like some of his other podcast episodes, um, but there is a real concern with at least what he's saying about artificial intelligence. If we're not careful with the development of artificial intelligence, that it could really work against humans and be potentially very dangerous. There's no question, and that's why we have to have the dialogue. So while the technology evolves and gives us this incredible capability, we also have to have the dialogue about is it appropriate just because we can do it should we do it? And what are the ethical implications of doing it? So I think all those discussions are as important uh, as the actual discussions underlying the development of the new technology. And that's one of the things that's so exciting about today's environment that, you know, we, we have the opportunity to develop these technologies that change our lives. But we also need to ask the question, should we? And how do we use these technologies in a manner that's most appropriate for humans? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, going back to this, so you were saying you were, you're the CEO of a company called Leap Biosystems now? That is yes. That, um, yeah, that's correct. <clears throat> what kind of work are you interested in doing in, in terms of like advancement in AI and, and, um, things of that nature? I'm just really, I'm really, I think this is a really cool topic and area. So I'm just kind of going, I'm curious to hear what other kind of innovations you guys are up to. Yeah. So one of the biggest challenges we face in healthcare today is the geographic disparity of healthcare. Mm -hmm. In other words, the outcome of whatever medical condition you have largely depends on where you are right. on the surface of the planet. Mm -hmm. And obviously, if you're in the Antarctic, the Arctic, or in an extreme isolated environment, your outcome is not going to be the same as if you're living in a major urban center and things. So what we're trying to do is develop augmented reality, artificial intelligence solutions to eliminate the geographic disparity of healthcare, whether that's in space on the surface mm -hmm. of the moon, on board the next generation space station, or whether it's in a different part of the world. Right, rural, using, rural America. Rural yeah. America. Yeah. Using these technologies to enhance the ability of local providers to provide just-in-time medical care. Mm. How would augmented reality play into that? 
So augmented reality is really critical. You know, you get into your car these days, and uh, if you're using Google Maps hooked up to your heads-up display in your car, Mm -hmm. you're now driving down the street with a heads-up display and Google Maps telling you, giving you verbal directions, but also showing you arrows which way to turn. You know, Mm -hmm. I I ride a Ducati motorcycle. We can have a sidebar discussion about, yeah, I've got a Ducati. It's great. Doctor, astronaut, a motorcycle. Coolest guy in the world, basically. (laughs) But, you know, today's motorcycle helmets, you can have a virtual reality display on your motorcycle visor, which then gives you instantaneous heads-up direction on which way to go, etc. So the concept of augmenting the reality of your current experience with information that will help you be able to navigate the environment in a safer manner, give you the information that you need to slow down, speed up, etc. All of this exists actually in the aviation world. We're just now bringing it into the driving world. And our company is thinking about bringing this into the clinical arena as well. So to me, I think it's going to be a game changer in the future of healthcare. And you think about all the different procedures that we Mm -hmm. perform as clinicians and think about how augmented reality can help you in performing those procedures that's what we're all about right now what about telemedicine are you guys involved in any of that and kind of like the augmented reality of telemedicine so telemedicine you know today's version of telemedicine is virtual medical care right. and one of the interesting aspects of virtual care is your patient literally could be anywhere mm-hmm. and you know when we're when we're demonstrating remote telerobotic surgery, what's kind of funny about that, the surgeon still puts on their surgical greens, yeah. even though the patient is thousands of miles away. <laughs> Just for sake, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> There's yeah, no point I, to doing that, right? <laughs> It really doesn't make any sense at all, but it's just part of the habit patterns that we have. So virtual care is something that's really interesting. I have a license to practice medicine in Canada, and yet when I'm delivering medical care on the International Space Station, I need a license to be able to practice medicine on the space station. Hmm. So NASA and the Russian Space Agency, in collaboration with international partners, trains you and certifies you to be able to deliver healthcare in that environment. So in the future, it may very well be that you'll see physicians who have a global license to practice medicine. That'd be cool. Because, yeah, through virtual care, your patient could be in New York City, it could be in Boston, your patient could be in California, or your patient could I be love in the that Antarctic. You that up. Yeah, because I've thought about this actually before, and I said, you know, we're moving into this whole globalization of healthcare, but why is it that I can't see a pa- If we're going to have telemedicine, what is the difference between me seeing a telemedicine patient across the street or a telemedicine patient in, you know, somewhere else in the world, at least if they can speak English? But it kind of makes you think about that, and um, I really am kind of glad you brought that up. Uh, yeah, this is a big game changer for healthcare, and some hospitals are just beginning to think about it. So I used to be a hospital CEO at South Lake Regional Health Center up in Newmarket, just north of Toronto in Canada, and our hospital was on what's called the Orion High-Speed Fiber Optic Telecommunications Network. Because in the future, we will get over these issues of licensing between countries, and it it may very well be possible to see clinicians with a global license. Mm. What's more important, though, is hospitals are now virtual entities. Mm -hmm. That you can have a physician in Boston taking care of a patient in Africa. Mm. 
And that's that's a game changer. It is. Because that means we can have operating rooms without walls, virtual operating rooms. Right. And the, the patient, sure, they'll be in an, a physical operating room wherever they're located in the country that they're located in, and there'll probably be a surgeon in that operating room. But virtual consultation will definitely become something of the future where the world's best surgeons will be able to virtually parachute in to a mm. clinical procedure in an operating room on another country on earth or right. on another on a space station and be able to be there as a consultant overseeing the surgical procedure that will happen obviously in my lifetime but that'll probably yeah. happen in the next 10 or 15 years that's incredible that's so cool um yeah it seems like the 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 changes are happening so quickly and just at a pace that's just, um, I guess, just exponential over the years. Would you agree? You know, the, the technology drives change in practice. So in space, we say the requirements to have humans explore space develops new technologies, which really do, do change the way in which we do things on Earth. So, for instance, a stethoscope. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe last night you were on call and you had your stethoscope hanging around your neck. Yeah. I would arguably say, what the heck do you need a stethoscope <laughs> for today? You could you could carry Thank around you. a Thank you so portable much. ultrasound, right? <laughs> well, and, yeah. You know, yep. it's instead of listening to heart sounds, you just do a bedside echo. You right. Know, no, no and that's actually deal. that's actually very true. And I've even had a cardiologist say this to me before: where the, the stethoscope is essentially essentially useless unless. I mean, sometimes it comes in handy when you're, you know, listening to breath sounds and things like that, or a clinical status of a patient, but routinely screening, it's not very helpful. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, over time, the stethoscope will be one of those old devices that we look back on at that era in medicine and say, wasn't it nice when we use those things? But it's changing the way in which we do business. You know, in space, we don't have diagnostic x-ray. We don't. We don't have MRI. So we've been using ultrasound in a very non-traditional manner. Ultrasound to diagnose fractures. Ultrasound to diagnose a pneumothorax. Ultrasound to diagnose pleural effusions. Mm -hmm. And what we're realizing is that when you're forced to use alternative technologies, you can actually come up with clinical scenarios where there is validity in using that tool in a unique way. Yeah, yeah, very cool. All right, going forward in your new ventures, the next 10 years, what is something you want to accomplish or what is a message you want to spread to the world? Well, first of all, you know, I'm 65 right now. Mm -hmm. And back when I was younger, I used to think that when you're 65, you're actually older. And we like to thank Senator Glenn for flying in space at age 77 yes. and redefining the meaning of aging for all of us. So, yes. you know, I would say I'm comfortably middle-aged at years for me, you know, I, I'm very excited about sharing my experiences of having been in space. So I'm working as a consultant, I'm writing books, I'm on the speaking circuit and really enjoying all of that. I think for Leap as a technology development company, we're hoping that 10 years from now, we'll be developing augmented reality solutions that are widespread in their clinical use, both in space, but also here on Earth. And of course, in 10 years, we're going to see humans back on the surface of the moon. And we're hoping that the clinical tools that they use will reflect an evolution of the technologies that we have today. The first humans to explore Mars, they're alive today. 
Now, the big question is, are they 7 to 10 years of age or are they 17 to 20 years of mm. age? We don't know, yeah. you know, but maybe I'll have a chance to go to Mars as a commercial astronaut. Never say and never, no, right? Yeah. And never let other people define your dreams for you. Just keep <clears throat> that art of possibility open and you never know what's going to happen. I, I love to hear that. And that's incredibly inspiring. Where did you get that? Where did you get that mindset to go after things no matter how difficult or just not being affected by any perceived limitations from people around you or from what others think is possible? Where do you get that from? Yeah, I think I got it from the school of hard knocks. Uh, yeah. You know, when you keep getting knocked down, you have a choice to stay down or get up. Mm-hmm. And I'm one of these people that said, you know what, I'm going to get up and just keep at it. Mm-hmm. And when you when you continue to do that and you work through some fairly significant challenges, then all of a sudden, you know, after a few years, you say, why should we start thinking about these limitations? Why not think about the art of the possible mm-hmm. and going forward and doing what it is we dream to do and aspire to do? First time I applied to medical school, I got rejected. Yeah. So, you know, I got in my second time around and it all worked out really well. People say to me, what medical school should I go to? And I say, the best medical school to go to is the one you can get into. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I have a, I've got plenty of stories like that too. And it's, um, and I've shared a lot of them and I, I agree. The school of hard knocks is where it's at. And I don't think, I think there's, I don't remember where I heard this, but there was a survey done asking people if they would have like some of the hardest moments or most difficult things that they've gone through with their life. If they could go back, would they change them? And most people say they wouldn't because they've learned something significant or it's kind of made them into or shaped them into a better person. And I do think that's 100% true. And like, I'd like to say, yes, I want more of those things because I want to keep growing and I want to keep evolving as a human. Um, But I think you don't you don't really think about that until you look back and say, yeah, that was a that was a really good thing. You know, everything is easier in hindsight looking back at it. And some of the toughest moments in my life were when things seemed really, really bleak. The first apartment that I could afford to live in in Montreal, to get to the apartment, you turn right into one alley off the street, Mm -hmm. you turn left into another alley, went halfway down that alley, and turn left into a third alley. So my apartment opened up into this network of alleyways. Uh And uh, it was $60 a month, one room, everything. what literally everything in one room yeah and uh you know i remember many nights falling asleep thinking how am i gonna figure out a solution to this Mm -hmm. how am i going to be able to succeed in life and you know working through it it's a step at a time you don't climb you don't climb mount everest yeah in one big giant step you climb mount everest by repeating small steps and not giving up on repeating the small steps absolutely there's almost something a little nostalgic about when you have those kind of moments because you think back and you remember the struggle and and it's it's almost like you know sometimes when you're going through that struggle and you're kind of trying to you know climb out of it there's something in that process that you just remember i just think about those times for myself where i was like you know like every day was a, a bit of a fight and you're always kind of like you always had something to climb for or like to strive for like to to move forward in and i guess in during the time you don't appreciate it but when i think back to those times i was actually very happy you know in a, yeah. in a weird way it's kind of hard yeah. to explain 
Well, it's yeah. interesting. You know, I believe there are studies from World War II that demonstrate that the incidence of depression actually went down in the United Kingdom during World War II because, of course, at that time, everybody was galvanized in trying to make sure that they were working hard to be able to fight for the future. Right. But, uh, you it's know, almost like a I, sense of purpose or sense of direction. You, you already know you, you have like this goal you have to reach and you're always trying to get out of it. So you're, you're striving towards something rather when... When you're more comfortable, it's like not as clear. Yeah, no Maybe. question about it. Yeah. And so I, I think, you know, for cancer patients, one of the reasons why I wrote the book is when I was diagnosed, I thought it was the end of my life. Mm -hmm. And as I worked through the situation, I realized that it doesn't have to be that way. And in some cases, it can be very tragic. And yes, no matter how hard we try, the outcome is not the one that we want. But uh, in fact, it is an opportunity, as Ted Rosenthal talked about, no matter how long one lives with whatever the illness may be, you can still live a lifetime in a moment. And uh, when I was uh, CEO of uh, Southlake, I got a call from one of the nurses who said, Dave, can you do me a favor? So what's that? He says, we have a young boy whose palliative care wants to meet an astronaut before he passes away. So I went and I spent four hours with that young boy. And, mm -hmm. you know, we totally ignored the rest of the world. So for that four-hour window, it was like we shared a lifetime together. It was yeah. an incredible experience. Yeah. And yet that opportunity is open to all of us every day if we're willing mm -hmm. to take it. 100%, yeah. I've had I've had a few experiences where... Um, going through my day, becoming overwhelmed, seeing patients or like getting caught up with like, because like there's a lot of administrative stuff and paperwork and things like that. And then there have been a few moments where I've like just said, okay, I'm going to stop for a second. I'm just going to really just talk with my patient, get to know them, not worry about anything else. I'll take care of all of that after for like 15, 20 minutes, just having that conversation with somebody figuring the, their life out, seeing how like you can connect with them and make their life a little bit better, takes all that stress away instantly. And it's like, you're just like, oh, okay, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, it's good, for, it's good for you as a healthcare professional. It's great for the patient. And often it helps us understand what the patient's clinical problem is. Mm -hmm. For me, in my role as an attending physician, I would have residents coming to me all the time that I'm teaching, presenting me cases. And they say, Dave, I don't know what's going on with the patient. I say, okay, let's go back. And I didn't go and make the diagnosis by any brilliant physical diagnostic test that I did mm -hmm. or my brilliant utilization of all the laboratory diagnostic tests, mm -hmm. I'd make the diagnosis simply by talking to the patient. Absolutely. And William Osler said years ago, the patient will tell you the disease if you're willing to listen. Yep. And that's very true. 100%. I agree. I agree 100%. Yeah. Um, so one more question for you. And um, kind of I'm just throwing this out there now just because I'm curious to hear what if you had, let's say all your books and everything that you've ever done um uh throughout your life if all of that was gone and you only had three truths that you could pass down to your family and to your kids and to the world what three things would you want to say to them if that's all that you could leave yeah so i think the mm -hmm. first one is be kind to yourself. 
you know, we all have that inner voice. And I think for many people, that inner voice is incredibly critical. We would never speak to other people the same way we speak to ourselves inside our own mind. So be, be kind to yourself and take care of yourself. The second one, I think, would be to focus on living your legacy. Don't focus on leaving a legacy. Focus on living your legacy on a day-to-day basis. Mm -hmm. And if you want people to think of you as being trustworthy, you have to be trustworthy. Live by your own core set of values Mm -hmm. and live your legacy on a day-to-day basis because you never know. You might be run over by a truck tomorrow or Mm -hmm. something catastrophic happens. I was almost killed two or three Mm -hmm. times when I was a kid. You never know what's going to happen. So live life to the fullest while we can. And the last... And the last one, I think, would be always challenge yourself. Mm-hmm. People talk about failure, you know, there's all sorts of crazy things going, oh, you have to have failed if you want to succeed. Nobody aspires to go out to fail. But I think one of the things, if you're always developing yourself and you're always learning and you're always challenging yourself, by definition, sometimes you're going to fail. Yeah. The first, I don't know about you, but the first time I got on a bike, I fell off, mm-hmm. but I got Got back on the bike. Skateboarding Mm -hmm. was even worse. Oh, my goodness. Thank goodness they have helmets, right? (laughs) So, you know, but I think the lesson is very important for life that Mm -hmm. throughout our lives, we want to continue to learn. We want to continue to grow as individuals, whether you're 25, 65 or 95. It's all about continuing to grow and learn and experience life to the fullest. And I think those are probably three things that I still try and live by and I hope to be able to pass on to my kids. I love that. I love that a lot. Especially that second one, live your legacy every day. That just spoke so, so much to me. Um, I think that's very powerful. Thank you so much, Dr. Williams. Um, oh, my pleasure. I, I say this all the time, but I think this is my most favorite podcast episode to date. And I, I, I kind of make a joke out of it now because I always say it because I'm always inspired by the people I talk to. But really, um, uh, thank you so much for your work. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me and share all of this um, incredible information. I think, I, think um, I, I feel inspired going out through the rest of my day right now. So... I'm going to challenge myself today. Thank you. Excellent. Well, thanks very, very much for having me on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure sharing my thoughts, and I really hope you enjoy reading Defying Limits. Definitely. Where can people find you, and where can they find your book? Uh, so if all you have to remember is Astro Dave MD. I've got a website. You can order the book on Amazon.com. You can get it at uh, Barnes & Noble. Most of the time, it's easier just to order it online. Right. And then if you want a signed copy, I have little stickies that I can sign and send it to you in an envelope, and you can stick it in the front of the book. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. All right, guys, go to Astro Dave MD. Um, we might even do a giveaway on this, so we will send you one of Dr. Dave's books on um, uh, Defined Limits. So take a screenshot of the episode and post it on your stories and uh, our Beyond Medicine team will hook you guys up. Hey friends, thanks for listening. Uh, Just as a post-production and pre-posting podcast note, um, I'd like to remind everybody that we are still trying to grow the podcast and any form of sharing our podcast is very helpful. So taking a screenshot, posting it on your social media. And as we mentioned before, we are going to do a giveaway for Dr. Dave's book, Defying Limits. So if you want to win a book, take a screenshot of the podcast, share it with your friends, post it on your stories. If you tag us and post it on your stories, 
You'll be entered to win. We'll pick one person to win one of Dr. Dave Williams's books, and we will mail it to you. So thanks. If you guys liked the episode, post it. Possibly get a book. All right, guys. Peace out.